make your way to Luke chapter 11 as we continue our series through this gospel, Luke chapter 11. We do not appreciate people who are ruled by anger. We do not credit virtue to that person who lives in perpetual rage, who is always exploding in wrath and seething over this or that person or situation. But don't you find it equally troubling when you meet a person who never gets angry? There aren't many such people on this globe, I don't think, and they're a whole lot easier to handle than the first. But spare me from people who never get angry about anything. I think they're creepy. They're dull to the point of sin. It is true that for the most part, man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. James chapter 1 and verse 20. Anger is a powerful force for evil. And we need to move it out of our lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. Yet there is a kind of anger that is virtuous. In fact, a sure test of character, I think, is what it takes to ignite your anger. If you're angry all the time, you're angry about the wrong things, it is an evidence of a weakness in character. But it is also a weakness in character when you are never angry about anything. What makes you mad? Your answer has much to say about who you are. I stress this point because in the passage before us today, Jesus gets mad. His anger is ignited against certain people, and this anger is going to be seen more and more as we come to the end of his life. Jesus was immeasurably kind and gentle. He was patient beyond comparison, but Jesus was deep enough and passionate enough to get angry from time to time. And we learn much about him when we define what it is that makes him angry. What makes Jesus mad? And what do we learn about his heart in the process? The setting for Jesus' display of anger is found in verses 37 and 38 of Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, <coughs> beginning at verse 37. Now I will say I'm using this, as, this anger idea as a hook to start us off here, the whole point of the passage is not merely Jesus' anger. But he certainly is angry here, and we see what it is that angers him. The setting, we find in verse 37, that when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. When Jesus had finished speaking, what was he saying? Remember, we go back as we looked at it last week. Verse 28 was his thesis in the most narrow context. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is his theme that he carries through, I believe, 29 through 36. The hearing of God's word and the obedience to it that is to follow. So his thesis is, hear the word of God and obey it. Verses 29 through 32, he speaks directly against the culture that is receiving his word and failing to obey it. They want more miracles. They want to test what Jesus is saying. And Jesus rebukes them in verses 29 through 32. 
Then at verse 33 through 36, Jesus teaches us that we need need to walk in the light of God's Word, to not be blinded to the truth, but this all-important lamp before our feet and light unto our path. Make sure that the light in you is not darkness, Jesus says by way of illustration in Proverbs. Rather, you should be guided by the Word of God. Hear the Word and obey it. Live it. That's what he's been saying. Now there are those, beginning at verse 37, that he will address who are not obeying the Word of God, and you could have fooled them. They thought they were. But Jesus is irritated with them. He's angered by them. And we read there again in verse 37, after he finishes this speaking, that this Pharisee invites him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Remember, they don't sit at a chair at the table, but recline on one elbow with their body kind of laying behind them and eating with their right hand. Verse 38, but the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. He marveled. He was confused. Now, kids, your parents, have they ever reminded you to wash your hands before you ate? Don't point to this and say, Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate a meal. Okay, that's not what's going on here. In fact, they're really not concerned about whether his hands are clean or not. What's going on here is actually ritual cleansing. This was a way of showing ceremonially that they were clean people and were distinctive from the vile world in which they lived. And it was a fairly elaborate ritual. The Pharisees in particular had developed this ritual. Uh, They had worked out uh, the fact that the water needed to be put in stone vessels. It had to be kept clean. They wanted to make sure no fly landed in the soup, so to speak. And so they put it in these special vessels that were kept to make sure that the water stayed clean. They talked at great length about how much water needed to be used to cleanse your hands. They talked about how you would then eventually dry those hands and even how the washing was to take place. It had to start at the fingertips and roll down over the wrist. And then it, at the end, started at the wrist and rolled down off the fingertips. It was very precise ritual. So these Pharisees, this Pharisee and perhaps others with him at what would appear to be a public meal, are going through all of this ritual cleansing of their hands, and they do it in their sleep. But he notices Jesus doesn't wash his hands. He sits down and does something that is very offensive. He does not wash his hands ritualistically. Now imagine that. Here's this Pharisee going through all of what he believes is necessary to honor God and to show his holiness. And Jesus doesn't join in, and he's a rabbi. He's a teacher in Israel, and there's all kinds of people that are following him, and he's speaking for God. And he doesn't wash his hands. We don't really know in this context if the Pharisee says anything to Jesus or not, but they enter into this discussion, and we notice that Jesus is angered. This riles him. The idea that this Pharisee is concerned that he did not ritualistically wash his hands. Jesus is angered by hypocrisy. And we'll lay this out in several different statements. The first coming here at verse 39, Jesus is angered with people who prioritize the outside over the inside. 
Verse 39, Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Jesus likens the ritual purification of cups and dishes to the nurture of their hearts. They pay meticulous attention to cleansing dishes and cups, but they do not exert the same care over their hearts. On the outside, ritualistically clean, but on the inside, morally filthy. Jesus' anger rises as he proceeds here. Verse 40, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? What's he saying? Is God the ruler of the physical world only? Is he not also the creator of the inner world? See the big picture. Don't just clean dishes. Don't just clean cups. Don't just clean your hands. Clean the wickedness and the perversion out of your hearts. Verse 41, But give what is inside to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. The NIV adds there the dish and you'll see the little brackets there. That is not in the original text, and I don't think is helpful to add it here. The point is, when you ritualistically clean your dishes, or let's go to something else. Let's talk about when you give alms. In fact, I think it might be the case Jesus is saying that's a whole lot more important. When you give gifts to the poor, make sure that you give from the heart. When you give alms, make sure that you give with a pure heart and everything else will be clean. No external religious duty should ever be seen as an end in itself. Make sure that you integrate internal space with external space. This Pharisee was shocked that Jesus did not wash his hands before the meal. What should have shocked him was that he was so careful about washing his hands and was unconcerned about his own heart. And that angered Jesus. Jesus is angered when our emphasis falls on the outside to the exclusion of the inside. Whatever you do externally, do it with a pure heart. Secondly, Jesus is angered with people who obsess about little things while neglecting big things. Verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you. This is a message of rebuke and condemnation. Israel had this elaborate, they had an elaborate everything when it came to religion. They had an elaborate ritual, not only of washing hands, but also of tithing. This system, I'm not, I was not able to decipher if it, was, if it included the herbs or not, or if this was something the Pharisees were just doing over and above. Jesus commends them for what they're doing here, so they're certainly doing a good thing, but they would give a tenth of all of the food that was grown from their land. And these Pharisees are meticulously carrying that one-tenth of the herbs, which would have been probably a fairly small little plot that just kind of adds spices and uh, to do some medicinal things with these herbs. They're meticulous about making sure they're giving a tenth of that. 
But what angers Jesus is that with all of their meticulous concern to honor God in tithing, they neglect justice and the love of God. And I think we can say in the heart of Jesus and what is being taught here is the truth that hypocrites major on minors. And that angers Jesus. True followers of Jesus major on the majors. We would think it absolutely ridiculous to hear somebody say that they went to college and majored in card playing and minored in chemistry. How ridiculous. But that is how some people live their lives religiously. It's the little minutia that's all important and the big things go unaddressed. It angers Jesus when people emphasize the small things and ignore the big things. And I think we need to ask ourselves in light of Jesus' instruction, do you as a follower of Jesus Christ major on the big things of love and justice and mercy and witness and holiness? Do we have a big sense of what God wants to do in our hearts and what He wants to do in this world, and is that the emphasis of our lives? Jesus is angered with people who make the big things smaller than the little things. Number three, Jesus is angered with people who lust for the esteem of others. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The most important seats in the synagogue, there would be an ark, a little box that was there at the front, probably somewhat in the position of the pulpit here in our setting. And behind that ark where it was a semicircular bench on which the rabbis would be seated and they would be facing the uh, people, the congregation. The most important seat was at the center of that arced bench. And if there were more than one row, it was the first row. In other words, the place of prominence, the place where everyone would see you. You Pharisees, says Jesus, love to sit right there. What is more, you love public greetings. These were formal greetings, not just someone saying, hi, how are you? But someone stopping and giving honor to the Pharisee as a Pharisee. You love those kinds of elaborate greetings, Jesus says. And that kind of pride angered the humble Christ. And he calls them to account for it. Jesus is angered with people who lust for the esteem of others. Number four, Jesus is angered with people who lead followers away from God. Verse 44, Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. What is he saying there? Coming in contact with a burial site rendered a Jew unclean. Coming in contact with a Pharisee had essentially the same effect. Walking over an unmarked grave for a Jew made that Jew unclean even if they didn't realize it, ritualistically unclean. And he is saying to these Pharisees that you are recognized in Israel as those who point the people to God. But you're hypocrites. What you're really doing is contaminating your hearers. They would be better off if they never knew you. I'll tell you, this is 
some pluck on Jesus' part, isn't it? He's upset, and he's telling them the way that it is. Your life is dragging other people down. If there's anything that angered Jesus, it was that. And I believe that it today grieves Christ to hear some of the fine-sounding radio and TV preachers as well as not a few local church pastors and teachers who subtly contaminate people with their teaching. Jesus does not appreciate that. And we should be cautioned, certainly. Jesus is speaking here to those who are in rebellion against him directly in context, but certainly there is an application that we should be cautious, those of us who teach, and that would include every parent it would include anyone in a formal teaching position. We need to be particularly cautious that we are majoring on the majors, that we are majoring on the internal and not just the external ritual, and above all, that we are not using our teaching opportunities to drag people away from the truth of God's Word. We have a responsibility as a church, and you have responsibilities, those of you who are parents, those of us who are teachers within the assembly, there is a serious responsibility to know that what we are saying is in accordance with the Word of God. Now there's a legitimate area of disagreement, of discussion, of debate that goes on in understanding biblical theology. We need to give one another that space and understand that there's that room. We aren't God, and we don't know all of the truth. We're searching and striving for it. Pastor Pratt and I and uh, Paul Perdue, we sat yesterday with a group of men from around this area talking about theology, the theology of a particular pastor in, in, uh, specifically as an, at an ordination council. But we didn't all agree on everything that we thought, and we're all grappling with issues, and we've gone to many of these ordinations and talk, talked about doctrine, and we, we still don't have it all. We never will. But there's one thing that is very heartening about sitting with such men and talking theology, and that's that it is the book that is the test. It's not tradition. It's not what it is that's going to make us look good. It's not about how do we appeal to people and grow a larger church, it's the book that must determine. And I know, I'm big enough to understand that my theology is not complete, and at places there's undoubtedly um, uh, aspects about it that aren't right, as God would look at it. But as we continue to hone and think and work, we must keep coming back to the book. And if God's word challenges a belief that we've had, we need to lay it aside and move on. And we don't need to worry about what people think or what it's going to mean politically. Whatever we believe, if God's word teaches it, we teach that. We're blind, undoubtedly. We don't see ourselves the way that we should. But we have this to say. If we're staking it to the word... We're in a good fight. Jesus is angered when people take his precious truth and twist it so that they draw people away from God rather than to him. May that never be our practice in our homes, in our personal lives, in this church.
Now there's someone listening in this crowd who is getting angry. Now believe me, much of it's already angry. Anybody who had anything to do with the Pharisees in a positive way is steamed. But there's somebody else listening here who's not been directly addressed in all of these points who is also getting very agitated. Verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. It would appear that he's fishing for Jesus to say something like, I'm sorry, you lawyers, don't take this personally. This is about the Pharisees only. But this lawyer understands, and, and literally that's the translation, he's a lawyer, he's an expert in the law. Such men were specialists in understanding the meaning of the first five books of the Bible in particular, and how that law applied in certain situations of life. So to a degree, these lawyers gave themselves to interpreting the law, and the Pharisees gave themselves to applying it and having people live it and adding all of their rules to it. But the lawyers and the Pharisees are really joined at the hip on this project. And so this lawyer rightly sees that Jesus, what he's saying to the Pharisees, he's really also saying to the lawyers, and he's asking for a distinction to be made, and he doesn't get very far with Jesus. He gets nowhere, in fact. Jesus issues his sixth point. Jesus is angered with people who impose rules on others. They don't bother keeping themselves. Verse 46, Jesus replied, And you experts in the law... Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. This phrase, one finger, we could read, I think, a little more uh, accurately from the original text. With one finger, you do not touch the burden. Does that mean touch it to help them, or does it mean touch it yourself to do it? I don't know that we even need to make that distinction because both were very true of these scribes, of these lawyers. The idea here is that they laid upon others burdens that they didn't help them bear, and they laid upon them burdens that they didn't themselves care about living. Ritualistic laws and rules. They overworked the interpretation of the law, and they placed obligations on people that no one could keep. Again, I think if you are in a position of authority, a parent, a teacher, an adult, if you're an, a teen, as you relate to other young people younger than you, if you have influence over others in an ongoing way or influence over others even in a setting, we need to make sure that we practice what we preach. There is nothing that so embitters people as hypocritical leaders and people of influence who issue high demands that they do not meet themselves. There's much room for misunderstanding there, and we don't have the time to flesh it all out here this morning. But it is right for parents to ask their children to do things they won't do because it's appropriate for children to do. But that having been said, parents, do you live what you command? Changing the situation from child to parent, looking at it from an adult perspective, are the things that you ask your children to do things that you're willing to do? 
Do you demand that they speak with kindness to one another and not fight and then chew out your wife or fight with your husband? That's hypocrisy. Do you teach them that all things belong to God and the money that they give, they should give some to God and you hoard and hold on and are greedy in the way you live? That's hypocrisy. Do we teach in our church, do we teach in our homes about fidelity and sexual purity? Do we teach about graciousness and love, but we don't live it? That angers the Lord of the church. If you don't live it, don't teach it. If your teaching is too shallow, start living it. We must practice what we preach, as the saying goes. Jesus is angered with these scribes. Number seven, Jesus is angered when people condemn earlier generations for what they themselves do. When they condemn earlier generations for what they themselves do. Verse 47, Jesus replied, or I'm sorry, verse 47, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. There's two things going on here. First of all, sarcasm. Jesus is using sarcasm. Secondly, the idea of family identity. The concept was very prevalent in Jewish culture that what your fathers and forefathers do, your ancestors do, you do. You did it in them. That concept is played out here in Jesus' words, and it sounds a little strange to us. I mean, their ancestors killed the prophets, and they're burying them. How is that wrong to bury and give honor to the prophets by burying them in these fancy tombs? Well, what we need to understand, again, is this corporate identity. You are, in fact, implicated in your ancestors. So what does that mean? Using sarcasm, Jesus says, to, to uh, quote a couple of other commentators, the current generation is finishing the job the previous one started. Or as another put it, the only prophet you honor is a dead prophet. You are finishing the job. They kill them, you put them in the tomb. The point is what? Remember back to the context of his earlier teaching. Hear the word and obey it. But God sends you prophets to proclaim the truth. Your parents kill him and you bury him. You've got quite a system going here of rejecting God's prophets. Verse 49, because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. <coughs> Not a direct quote from any Old Testament context, nor do I believe a quotation from any book in existence at that time. But what he is simply saying is just a way of uh, paraphrasing God's truth it could be summarized in the Old Testament. I will send apostles, I will send prophets, and they will kill them and persecute them. Therefore, verse 50, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, 
I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. You join with your ancestors in rejecting the prophets. You pride yourself in building those prophets great tombs, but you are in fact doing exactly what they are doing. What every prophet witnessed to is Messiah. Messiah stands before you, and just like your ancestors, you are rejecting his word. And soon this same prophet who stands before them will be held up on a cross. And so all of the prophets whom God said, and from Abel, Genesis chapter 4, taken in a very general way, he was a witness to what righteous living is, to Zechariah, who in the canonical order, originally of the Hebrew Bible, comes in 2 Chronicles 24, as the last prophet mentioned to give his life. But Jesus also mentions here the apostles, you will be held accountable for all of them because you've joined in the stream of rejecting God's word and God's teachers. Finally, Jesus is angered when people hinder others from seeking God. Jesus is angered when people hinder others from seeking God. Verse 52, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have entered those who were entering. This is highly critical. The lawyers took the key of knowledge, which unlocks the truth of God's word, and they threw it away. You ask any lawyer in that setting, and they would say the exact opposite. What we do is we mold the key, and we hand it to the people to unlock the truth of the law. Jesus says, no, the key has been handed to you, and you've thrown it away so that no one can find their way. Far from helping people enter the kingdom of God, you have barred the door. You've kept it locked. Leon Morris says this, Instead of opening up the treasures of knowledge, the lawyers close them fast. They turn the Bible into a book of obscurities, a bundle of riddles. Only the experts could understand it, and the experts themselves were so pleased and preoccupied with the mysteries they had manufactured that they missed the wonderful thing that God was saying. They neither enter themselves nor allowed others to enter. We go back to verses 33 through 36, and we think of the light of God's Word that is to light our path. And we see how horrible these individuals have failed. How horribly. Jesus shined a searchlight on their hearts, and he exposed their hypocrisy. What you have done you criticize your ancestors and you're doing exactly what they did. They hindered people from seeking God and you're doing the same thing by your teaching. That angers Christ. And Jesus' words anger the people. What is it that makes you mad? Jesus has laid it out very clearly before us, the things that anger his heart, the things that he will stand up to. 
Jesus' opponents also get angry when he says these things. Verse 53, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. What made them angry was that their reputation had been attacked. Their hypocrisy had been exposed. Jesus had actually been very gracious. His rebuke was a call to repentance. But they not only refused his call, they determined to destroy him. And thus the hypocrisy continues. We love God. We teach his word. But we want to kill the Messiah. It's chilling evil. Their anger exposes their heart. They were, at the very core, self-centered. They were power seekers who promoted self-interest over God and His glory. And their anger witnesses to this fact. Why is it that Jesus is angry? We can say, why is it that these teachers of the law, that these leaders and Pharisees are angry? They've been exposed. Self is at the core. Self has been attacked. But what is it in the heart of Jesus that leads him to give out this display of anger and to stand up against hypocrisy? I'm sure there are many ways that we could think through this and analyze it, but I think at the core of it has to be the fact that Jesus is the truth and that God is love. There is truth And there is love that permeates the heart of Christ. And when he sees something outside of that truth and that love, it frustrates him. It angers him. He attacks it. Truth, that is, Jesus is an authentic person. His life corresponds to reality. And when he sees people's lives who do not correspond to reality, he's angered. Because that's destructive. He's angered when people destroy themselves because, secondly, he is not only all about truth, he's all about love. The love of Jesus Christ for people was deep and passionate and, in fact, infinite. By loving others, he wanted what was best for them. And so he wanted his people to hear the truth unadulterated and pure. And he did not appreciate those who harmed his people from hearing the word. And so really the smaller point in all of this is what is it that angers you? What does it reveal about you? And we can ask, are you passionate enough about the truth of God to get riled when God's glory is masked? That's what got Jesus angry. The glory of God was attacked. And because he was a man of truth and he was a man of love, that stirred his heart. We must also say, and I think the larger point for us today, and I I want to be careful here, truly Jesus is speaking to those who are in the darkness. These are people who are hypocritical to the core of their being, and he attacks that very vehemently as he calls them hypocrites and fools and challenges them for what they're doing So I want to stay on course there and not say that this is a message from Jesus directly to us who know the truth and love the Lord and are seeking to be humble and seeking to be genuine. But undoubtedly, 
we must not go away without admitting that there is a part of the hypocrite in all of us. There's a mask that's in our closet that we put on from time to time to look like something we're not. To emphasize the little while we ignore the big. To emphasize what is on the outside that others can see while ignoring what is on the inside. To long for the esteem of others. To be angered, to not be angered when we see people leading others away from God's Word. To tell others what to do when we don't do it ourselves. To criticize our parents for the weaknesses in their faith and theology and to chase after things that are just as bad or worse. To hinder others from seeking God. There's the bit of that in us all. And I don't want to go there. Because I don't want to disappoint the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one thing that angers him. It's people who get focused on the wrong thing and lead other people astray. I don't want to disappoint my Lord by doing that. And I hope that that's a commitment and a truth that's ringing in your own heart right now. That I would not play the part of the hypocrite. But that I'd focus on what God wants me to focus on. And I would lead others to the truth, not turn them away from it. Let me say as we close here this morning that the ultimate hypocrisy is for you to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear his offer for salvation and to say, I can do better than that. Or I don't need that. I don't need a Savior. Don't go there. It doesn't make a bit of difference that you were born into a Christian home. It doesn't make a bit of difference really on this matter if you read your Bible every day or pray every day or think that you're a good person or have followed the rituals that have been assigned to you. What matters is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. You claim that you're righteous and turn your back on Jesus Christ, and that is the ultimate hypocrisy. And there is a day when Jesus' wrath will fall. He gave His life for you. He took our sin and he paid the penalty with his life to turn your back and say, I don't need that. 
is evil. It is foolish, and it will be judged. And I say that not to scare only, though that would be all right if it did, but I say that because it is the truth of God's word. You can't read his word any other way, and anyone who tells you something else is not being true with this book. You must have Jesus Christ. You must be forgiven by his work on the cross, his death in your place, and his resurrection. You must be saved by him. Don't go into eternity as a hypocrite. Because you will meet the anger of Christ. That is a serious word of warning. And I don't state it lightly. But I state it if I'm speaking to you directly. Maybe you're even hiding behind a mask so I don't know who you are. But I state it directly so that your soul would have hope. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God. And coming to faith in that truth, we can have hope and life and joy. Where did we start this morning? We came before the throne of God. And as I led us in prayer this morning, I said, we come into your presence boldly, not on our merits, but on the merit of Jesus. It is scary to the core of my being to think about the anger and the judgment of God. But on the other hand, there is the confidence that that anger has been spent on Jesus and that I have been covered in God's grace and can now come into the presence of the one who should consume me in my sin. And he holds out his hand of invitation and receives me on the merits of Jesus. What joy. And that's why we sing. Let's bow for prayer. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us, O Savior. See if there be some wicked way in us and cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Lord, hear our prayer. Remove from us the roots, those bitter roots of hypocrisy. I plead for your people, and I want to plead in particular for someone who is caught right now in a web of deception, who has filtered this message, perhaps, looking at other people's hypocrisy and not their own. Who takes with them now a judgmental spirit. God, rescue them. I pray that it would be our heart's desire, each of us, to consider carefully how we line up to what is important to Jesus. Help us to emphasize the internal, 
that which is big. Help us not to love the praise of men, but to love the praise of God and to hold out your word to the needy and to proclaim your truth. Oh God, remove from us the root of hypocrisy as a church, as individuals, as families. And I pray for anyone who is lost in sin that you would do what only you can do and open their eyes to the light of the gospel of Christ. Bring them to saving faith today and to lay down their own self-centered and human ways of pleasing you and to embrace what Jesus has done in their place. May that take place today as you see that it needs to and as you in your grace would bring that about. We plead with you. May we be genuine, filled with truth and love. Through Jesus I pray, amen.